Welcome to the Arrogance of Infinity podcast, tales of transition from the industrial to technology age. This is a tale of tragedy, but not a sob story. It's a remarkable coincidence and an inspirational reminder to me of the thin threads that bind and the cycles of human experience that can make one feel never alone. This is part 39, One Bridge. One of my favorite podcasts is The Great Stories, classic narratives of iconic authors, produced half a world away by Trev Downey, a professor of English in Dublin. He's joined by a literary pal, Neil Poole, who calls in from the UK. Their analysis is fantastic, but even better is that listening feels like running into them at a neighborhood pub right after you've read what they're reading. My eyebrows pinched in curiosity as I listened across the pond while they discussed Kate Chopin's The Story of an Hour. Downey and Poole always offered insights into the author's life and talked that day of how Kate's father had perished in an 1855 train wreck in central Missouri. Less than half a day before listening to The Story of an Hour, I'd been doing research for a story of my own one I thought had nothing to do with an author of whom, I'm embarrassed to say, I knew nothing. In the process, I learned my great-great-grandfather, Douglas Aylshire, had survived an 1855 train wreck in central Missouri. The author of the hour, Kate Chopin, Miss O'Flaherty, then Mrs. Oscar Chopin in her days, is far too little known. Like Virginia Woolf, She's a courageous and powerful storyteller who more than a century ago preceded feminism with observations of mutual gender truths and real-life inequities. She lost her father at age five, two brothers by the age of 25, and her husband at 32. She didn't give up on men. She just stopped expecting them to be around. At the turn of the 19th century, she was a champion of individual identity, and her writing broke new ground before disappearing from the American literary landscape until the 1970s. How many 1855 train wrecks could there have been in central Missouri? I wondered as I went to the Google. Sure enough, Kate and I both had family on that train. Knowing my own life, and learning of hers brought about parallels. We shared the geography of the central Mississippi River Basin, the premature loss of a parent, childhoods dominated by strong women, lost family fortunes, philosophies regarding individualism, and one of us is a renowned author. The coincidence of discovery and timing became enchanting as Kate Chopin's life and words sent me a mystic whisper of connection that bridged more than 125 years. Grandad Aylshire was a conductor on the 1855 train. His survival without a scratch was akin to being a living crewman from the RMS Titanic. The train's plunge had its parallels to the ocean liner's maiden voyage. Eleven rail cars were loaded with 600 dignitaries including the founder of St. Louis and the city's mayor, as well as bankers, judges, state legislators, 
their friends and children. The notables had been invited to the state capitol in Jefferson City to celebrate the kickoff of what was to be the Pacific Railroads and the state of Missouri's bid to become the gateway to manifest destiny by connecting the east and west coasts of the United States of America. The trestle was late and incomplete on November 1st, 1855, and girded with temporary supports. Torrential rains and political egos persisted throughout the day. A half mile from the confluence with the muddy Missouri River, the muck of the Gasconade succumbed to the pressure and killed 43 passengers while injuring hundreds more. A surviving junior editor of the Western Journal, a business periodical, would recount the occurrence. In transport and solitude, I was sitting in a small saloon over the last wheels of the last car, gazing out of the back window, when, seven miles west of Herman, at nearly half past one o'clock, gradually and quietly, the car stopped and all was still. Thinking that Mr. O'Sullivan, the engineer, had stopped the cars to give passengers a view of the bridge, I arose from the window. The pleasing charm by which I had been spellbound was broken. An awful abyss opened wide before me. I stood on its brink. Only one, the last car, remained on the track. Ten laid in ruins. One car was hanging on the abutment. A man was hanging by his arm through the window of the car. I caught him by the collar of his coat as he struggled with his hands and feet, drew him safely through the window of the car to the firm rocks of the precipice. All of the other passengers had sunk down into the front part below, and the groans of the wounded and dying ascended from the chasm as from an infernal region, while the wind was howling and the rain beating down in torrents. The Missouri Republican newspaper of November 2nd, 1855, published a combined article of the inaugural trip and ensuing tragedy. It ends with the words that may as well have been written by then five-year-old Catherine O'Flaherty. How little do we know what an hour may bring forth. There was no table to turn the train at Jeff City, so a locomotive followed backwards to return the train to St. Louis once the back-slapping celebration had ended and parting gifts were imparted. It hauled wounded survivors instead. Along the way back, an astute engineer wondered about a similar crossing at Buff Creek that had been successfully crossed earlier in the day. Reinspection revealed that it too was sinking. The beleaguered Pacific Railroad was halted like Napoleon at Waterloo. Walking injured crossed the bridge on foot, while others were ferried in john boats to await river steamers and another rescue train. Lord only knows how many died in the wait, and if Kate's father was one. St. Louis was the linchpin of American expansion in 1855. The Gateway City closed for several hours of funerals one day that year. One of the hours was for Thomas O'Flaherty. My great-great-grandfather was there, along with five-year-old Kate and her mother. Later, they all watched the railroad get ravaged by corruption, then civil war. 
They didn't mourn when the nation's transportation hub departed St. Louis for Chicago. The loss was more subtle than a train wreck. Douglas Aleshire of Illinois left the railroad and went on to establish an insurance company that would thrive then be sold to a conglomerate. The story of an hour brought deeper context to how my mother's family became once wealthy after a man who narrowly escaped death built an organization to serve families of those who don't. How could I not ruminate on the uneven parallels of the O'Flaherty and Aleshire families, of me and Kate? What goes around comes around, and goes and comes around again. In my Googling, I saw images of Catherine O'Flaherty Chopin. It was no surprise that she looked like a composite of women from Western Illinois and East Missouri of the 19th and early 20th centuries, stoic and stern and soft like the women who raised me, wise and witty with a hint of loneliness that they would deny if asked. I wouldn't have driven 10 hours from our home in Minnesota to see the Gasconade site, but as further coincidence would have it, my wife is from the same Jeff City that invited wealthy St. Louisans across two suspicious bridges to a political extravaganza. Central Missouri was balmy in December of 2021, requiring only shirt sleeves and a light jacket. So my brother-in-law liked the idea of a road trip to Gasconade to fill an empty slot on a day in a holiday week. We stopped at a country tavern, but not near the site. There's no saloon in Gasconade, no small town cafe, not even a Casey's Quick Mart. The village is nestled in a scenic valley at the confluence of the Missouri and Gasconade rivers. And even though it is home to two notable historic occurrences and a single whistle stop from the high traffic wineries of Herman, Missouri, the only signs of life in the little town of Gasconade double as signs of death. We marveled at the lack of attempt to drive, to drive even the most modest tourist trade. The Pacific Railroad went down at Gasconade. Lewis and Clark camped and cut their surveying teeth there, then left. My brother-in-law and I went to the town with no place to wet a whistle, with hopes of discovery, with hopes to see or find a link that brings a 166-year-old coincidence to life. We saw neglected structures, a six by nine inch Lewis and Clark campsite marker with a 22 caliber dent, an off limits fence around an Army Corps of Engineers base that has a 40 acre campus of crumbling century old buildings that have been replaced by a tin shed and one soldier with an iPad. In Gasconade, there's a 10 year old rail trestle that is surely stout enough to support a trainload of dignitaries, but there's no sign of, or sign for, the Titanic-like plunge of 1855 rail cars. Not a murmur of coincidence that I could offer in condolence to Kate Chopin and her mother. Not a high sign of hallelujah for my great-great-grandfather. There's no saloon or cafe, no plaque, nothing but nothing. The thing most missing was a sign that read, I'd turn back if I were you.
I was disappointed the folks of Gasconade didn't build a monument to the event that sent me a mystic whisper. But I realized it wasn't the locals who met Kate in a coincidence. So I had to move on to being thankful. And I was. I had discovered a new voice from 1894 and met a great author who I've known all my life in The Women Who Raised Me. In a few days of reading, I watched Catherine O'Flaherty Chopin's life unfold and relived my own family history. I read about life and corruption and death and courage. I saw a voice of sincere integrity get canceled, then rightfully reemerge. I discovered in a coincidence that the story of an hour is the story of our lives.